Gina Messina, and welcome back to another episode of When Is It Time to Just Eat the Donut, a podcast that shares our stories and dares to ask the question, when is it okay for us to be bold, take risk, and break the rules? Today, I'm talking with Rachel Hollander, author of the forthcoming book, Throw the Ball, An Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness, and host of the very popular podcast, I Wasn't Always Like This. Rachel, I am always so, so excited to talk to you because you always have such wisdom and so much to share. I hang on your every word, I feel like, really. I learned so much from you. And I feel like we're kindred spirits because we both have a deep love for hot glazed Krispy Kreme donuts. And we're both risk takers. We're both rule breakers. We're both writers. And we both live with depression, which I think is surprising for people to hear. So I have so appreciated the ways that you have been incredibly vulnerable in talking about your depression and sharing with people to help them understand what your experience is like to let people know that they're not alone in their experience of depression and also to really address a lot of the misconceptions that exist around depression. So maybe we could start off talking a little bit about your own story in coming to understand what it means to live with depression for yourself and how you've coped with it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And I think the biggest piece about my story is that it's been a journey. Um, I I remember discovering in a diary from 1974, when I was 10, I had written the words, I am depressed. And when I read that, I read it in my 20s. And I read that and I thought, I don't even remember knowing that I knew that word. But at 10 years old, apparently I knew that word. And so looking back now from the perspective of where I'm standing, um, depression has always been there. It's always been a part of my life. In fact, I describe it in my writing as the hum. It's a hum like uh, fluorescent lights. If, you're in, if you've ever been in a room with fluorescent lights and there's, there's a hum that fluorescent lights have, you don't always hear it. If you're involved in a meeting or in a discussion, you don't hear the hum. But if you get quiet, you can hear that hum. The hum is always there. And so depression for me has always been like this hum that's always been there. And sometimes it's louder and sometimes it's more pronounced. And um, at different times in my life, it's been more debilitating than others. And at this point in my life, now I'm actually able to, I refer to it as the worst roommate ever. That I, you know, I live with depression. It's the worst roommate ever. It doesn't do the dishes. It's lazy. It won't get a job. You know, it's, it's just all constantly in my face. It, you know, it doesn't like to shower and all this stuff. Um, it's just now instead of saying things like I have depression or I am depressed, that's not the truth of me. I live with it. And that helps me um, find a way to keep living, basically, to stay alive. Wow. Well, one of the things that I find so incredible that you do is that you relate everything back to the Wizard of Oz. Um, And who does not love the Wizard of Oz? Who doesn't know that story? And you use this as a way of talking about depression and a way that we are living our lives and what we need to realize. And I wonder if you can share that wisdom with us. 
Absolutely. And and it's when I had a, I had a spiritual center when I lived up in Anchorage, Alaska. And I think the Wizard of Oz came into just about almost every Sunday talk I did. And my little small but mighty congregation used to laugh. Like I would say, okay, and now how does this connect to the Wizard of Oz? And they would all just start laughing because everything connects to the Wizard of Oz. In general themes, you know, many of us feel lonely and isolated like Dorothy felt. You know, she had no parents. She was living with her aunt and uncle. All she had was this little dog that this mean woman was trying to take from her. We've all experienced abandonment and loneliness and feeling misunderstood. We've all wanted to go someplace where we were seen and appreciated. The Yellow Brick Road itself is a great metaphor for the journey of life that we're all walking. You know, Ram Das gifted the world with that great phrase, we're all just walking each other home. That's one of my favorite phrases, is we're all just walking each other home. That's the Yellow Brick Road. You know, we find companions along the way who walk with us. The big part of that, of, the, of the, the metaphor of the movie, is that we all already have within us what we go looking for. You know, we spend our lives searching outside of ourselves for romance or for money or for success or for recognition or for whatever it is we think is going to fill that hole that we think we have, when in fact, we have everything within us that we need. Um, and then, of course, the last thing, the last message of the film is, if we ever go looking for our heart's desire, we should never go looking farther than our own backyard, which is ourselves, our soul, our heart. You know, it's not really a backyard. It's us. You know, we only get hurt when we go looking outside of ourselves for what we already have within us. So the movie has many themes and many, uh, many ways of, of symbolizing our lives and our journey. So that's one of the metaphors and one of the ways that you cope with your depression or cope with depression, not yours. One of the ways that you cope with depression is through this metaphor of the Wizard of Oz. But what are some of the other ways that you have found are important mechanisms for coping that that others might not realize that would be helpful for them to consider when they're struggling with the worst roommate ever, as you say. So this is the one that whenever I say it, somebody out there will roll their eyes and that's okay. Roll away. Just don't pull a muscle. The thing (laughs) that I learned, the piece that I learned, the magic, the magic answer is gratitude. When I was struggling at my worst in the eighties with depression, I was hospitalized. I was, uh, I went through every medication on the market. I went through eight sessions of shock treatment. I I've been, I spent five and a half months in a psych unit. I have been through the gamut. And it wasn't until I learned what gratitude was that that shifted everything. And so um, one of the funny, well, I think it's funny stories. Uh, About five years ago, I was in Ithaca, New York, and I was in a really dark place. It was the darkest place I'd been since the 80s. Um, I, I, I was really immobilized by depression. And so I flung myself down on my bed and I was crying and I started screaming out a gratitude list through the tears, laying on the bed. I was yelling things like, I have warm socks. I can dress myself. I, ha- I like my toothpaste. My toothpaste is a really good flavor. I have a teapot that makes the perfect cup of tea. You know, and I just started screaming out anything that was that I could be grateful for as I was crying. And eventually, like I was exhausted by that. 
and then it woke me up. Like it was just like, okay, so even while depressed, even in the deepest, darkest darknesses, there is something to be grateful for. Anything, you know, set the bar low. I can tie my own shoes. That's a big one for me, actually, like self-care. You know, I used, when I used to, when we used to go to the grocery store um, at the checkout stand, you know, the, regis- the woman registering, doing the register would say, you know, how are you today? And I would say, well, you know what? I'm vertical and I dressed myself. Set the bar low, you know, start from there because some people can't do that. And that's not to say that they're miserable. It's that I would be. So, so I get to say, I'm grateful that I, I have comfortable clothes that I can put on. I have a bed that I sleep on inside a house with a roof. Sometimes gratitude has to come down to the absolute, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, do you have the basic needs met? Great. Start there. And that, again, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but that's not to say I'm not a big proponent of the comparison, the comparison situation where if I've been, if I'm feeling depressed, if I'm in a deep depression and somebody says, well, you know, they have it a lot worse in Syria. That doesn't help me. That's not helpful. Yes, they do have it worse in Syria. I don't live in Syria. So I need to, I need to figure out how can I get back up on my feet? So then I'm strong enough to help the people in Syria. Otherwise, you know, what, what, what good am I doing? So really the magic, the magic pill is really gratitude. And there's so much of what you say here that I appreciate first being that, well, a lot of times when we think about gratitude, first, we always go to the obvious. I'm so grateful for my family. Of course, we're all grateful for our families, right? Of course. But You know, there are some days when I really have to think, oh my gosh, like I'm so grateful that I had $4.95 to go to Starbucks, Um, which by the way, I don't do that very often. I find it outrageous to spend so much money on a cup of coffee, but once in a while to splurge on something like that, um, because you need the caffeine to get you through the day and you have the ability to do that, right? It's uh, like, Mm -hmm. oh, something to be grateful for. Like you said, just being able to tie your shoes, you know, uh, sometimes I think in our society, we're really, really good at putting a negative spin on everything instead of, you know, thinking about what the positive aspect to it is like, oh, my God, my car broke down. This is ridiculous. But well, we have a car. So a lot of people don't have one. Right. Um, And it's hard to do that in that in those moments. And I know that it's hard, but I love that you're just like being grateful for, you know, having your basic needs met. If we can start there. Wow, how much that can shift things for us. It's a huge um, shift. I mean, when the pandemic started and I realized I was going to have no income and I, I, I was standing in my kitchen and I thought, I'm, I'm in trouble. And then I found that I had peanut butter and jelly and matzah, <laughs> matzah crackers. And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I've got PB&J and matzah crackers and water. I'll be fine. You know, <laughs> I'll be and, and it was, you know, I could have panicked. I could have freaked out. I could have been like, oh, my God, I don't have rice and beans and toilet paper. But the bottom line was I had what I needed. And in that moment, that was to me like the perfect metaphor of what to be grateful for. What's the most basic thing I can be grateful for? Yes. Well, I I want to add that, you know, just going back to your story, I cannot um, imagine what it must have been like for you in the 80s to make the decision to say, I, I'm going to be hospitalized. I'm going to try shock treatment. I'm going to try every medication. I'm going to do anything that it takes. 
and making that kind of decision. None of those were decisions. <laughs> None of those were active decisions. Those were all reactive outcomes. Um, I was hospitalized because I tried to kill myself and my psychiatrist was like, and you're no longer safe. So we're putting you in the hospital. It was not a locked unit. So I could have walked out anytime I wanted. However, um, I didn't because I liked it there. <laughs> that was the other piece that's in the podcast is I played ping, I played bingo. I had art therapy and I got pudding at three meals a day. I loved being in the hospital. And at that point in my life, I did not want to leave the hospital. <laughs> like it was my safe place. It was lovely. The shock treatment was a decision. There were, there were some things that happened before that. There was a, a death of a young woman on the psych unit my own response to that. And the fact that I was actively suicidal, my question when they said, you know, I, I don't want to give away the whole podcast because I want people to listen. But um, when it came to that moment where they said, you know, this is the only option on the table, my question to the doctor was, is it dangerous? Could I die from it? Because my thought was, let them kill me. If I let them kill me, then my mom can sue. She'll get a ton of money from a malpractice suit. I'll be out of the picture. Everybody wins. That was my thought process. So I didn't agree to shock treatment to help me. I agreed to shock treatment because I thought they would do something I didn't have the courage to do, which is really messed up when you think about it. Yeah. It's insanely messed up. That was where that was my head. I had no sense of gratitude. I had no sense of appreciation. I felt like a burden to everyone and and that I I didn't bring anything worthwhile to the table. Rachel, you have worked really hard <laughs> to evict your ridiculous roommate. And in one of the ways you've done that is that you've written a book and you've started this podcast and you've done so in the spirit of saying my vulnerability is going to help other people recognize the ways that they can cope with living with depression, which I think is an incredibly courageous act. And I wonder what made you decide that you needed to do this and how did you know it was time for you to do this? Um, I'm going to answer your question circuitously. Um, the operative word in that phrase is living with. So I just realized that it was like, it's way too easy to die from depression or because of depression. It's much more courageous and scary and worthwhile to live with it. And so over the years, I would hear people say, you know, I suffer from depression or I'm a victim of depression. And I thought, no, that's those are choices. Um, there's a great Buddhist saying that says, uh, oh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm. So the idea that we don't have to suffer from anything, we really don't. We can experience pain, we can struggle with it, we can be face to face with challenges, all of those things, but we don't have to suffer. That is a choice. And so I've, I decided that, so I'd written this book. I've been working on this book for like 10 years and I finally finished this book. And it's, it's, it's not a read from cover to cover kind of book. It's, it's short essays, reflections, thoughts about living with depression, tips for staying alive. And it's the kind of book that you can pick up and, and open to any page and get an inspiration. You don't have to read it from cover to cover because as somebody who lives with depression, I know how difficult it is sometimes to focus. And so if somebody gave me a book and said, read this book, and I was 
in the midst of a depression, I'd be like, again, not going to happen. But if somebody hands me something and says, you know, you can open this to any page and see a, a one page or a page and a half inspiration that I can do. And so I decided it was time to not only share my story, it was also time to help. And this is going to sound arrogant. It's not arrogant, but to give people permission to live with the depression. So I'm not giving them permission. It's the idea of let's give ourselves permission to live with depression, that it's okay. It's not bad. You're not broken. It's not, well, it's not bad to be broken. Nothing's wrong with us. This is, this is who we are. And so, um, so I wrote the book and then I was just getting so frustrated with the publishing process. I, it was taking too long and, and I'm sitting on this book and sitting on this book. And finally, a friend of mine said, look, what's the most important thing? Publishing the book or telling your story? And I said, telling the story. And she said, then start a podcast. And I, I said, can I do that? <laughs> like, you know, I listen to podcasts. I'm like, you can just start a podcast. And so she directed me to this website that guides you through step by step. And um, so part of my pandemic projects were to finish the book, get it edited, get it ready to go. And in the meantime, start the podcast. So I started it in, I want to say July, maybe we're in season three. So I think it was July. And to keep the episode short, to keep it, um, and I'm just sharing my story and then reflecting on how my story might be relatable to other people. I, um, I think that so many people are so grateful that you have launched this podcast. And I just want to acknowledge, again, how courageous it is, the work that you're doing. And I wonder, you know, what risks did you feel entering into this? And how did you negotiate with yourself to say, you know what, it's, it's worth it? There were a lot of negotiations. When I first started, I was like, I know how this is going to go. And this is going to be a breeze. And I'm just going to talk into this microphone and tell my story. And then as it started, as I got into like the first, second, maybe third episode, I realized, oh, how much of my story do I want to tell? How much of my privacy do I want to open up to? And there have been certain things that I have not shared. There have been certain things that I've shared that I thought, okay, this is a tightrope walk. Here we go. When a, a, a dear friend who plays very a big part in the podcast. His name is Dan. He saved my life in New York, although he says he doesn't remember doing it, but I remember him doing it. He has been listening and he wrote to me. He, I love the way he said it. He said that it took a lot of courage to grind out the learning curve in my story. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really powerful is to, to choose to tell the story. And not only just tell the story, find the reason for why I'm telling the story, find what I've learned, find what can be useful to other people. Because truthfully, the goal is to save one person. You know, it's like the starfish story, the young boy on the yeah. beach saving one starfish at a time. If I can, if I can, if my voice, my story can stop one person in that moment and let them know that it's okay to feel the way they feel, that it won't last forever and to just give it five more minutes, then it's then sharing anything about myself is worth it because then I will have done, I will have accomplished what I want to accomplish, which is help people just accept where they're at. Rachel, I, I cannot thank you enough for this time together. And um, I always appreciate what you share. And I do think that you are incredibly bold and strong. And so many people are benefiting from you and from your work. So thank you for that. 
And I just want to say again, to anyone who wants to hear Rachel's podcast, you can access it on her website at RevRachelHollander.com or wherever you listen to your podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen, you can access Rachel's podcast. And the title is? The title is, I Wasn't Always Like This, an Uplifting Podcast About Living with Depression. Fantastic. Rachel, I know that I'll be seeing you very soon. And I hope that everybody who's listening tunes into your podcast because it really is. It really is. It's soul work and it's life-changing work. So thank you for it. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk because I do love to talk. And um, thank you so much for this time, Gina. Thanks. Don't forget to visit my website at ginamessina.com to learn more about the guests on the show or to consider signing up for a workshop. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of When Is It Time to Just Eat the Donuts?